0: There really is something to be said about having a staff that is multi-generational because um, there are some investigative reporters at The Oklahoman that had been there since I was in diapers and I was lucky enough to sit next to them and learn from them and just overhear their phone conversations and how they talk to sources.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Journalists Are My Heroes. I'm your host Kyle Munson. I spent 24 years in daily news and now I interview working journalists and others who care about journalism because we can't seem to agree anymore on a basic definition of journalism. So, one good conversation at a time, I try to show what local journalism is all about. You're going to like today's guest, folks. Gramley Brewer. He's a Cherokee journalist in Oklahoma. And currently, a contributing editor for High Country News. That's a nonprofit news org covering the American West. Graham is on its tribal affairs desk. He's also a board member of the Native American Journalists Association and has a long track record with the Oklahoma newspaper, where he covered the state house, the criminal justice system, and other issues. One thing I might not have yet revealed about myself on this podcast is how. Medical settings and discussions uh, about medical issues can make me pass out. Yeah, I've um, done it in doctor's offices, getting shots, just talking about it. It happened to me a couple times as a journalist, once when I was sitting at somebody's kitchen table. That was embarrassing. They were kind. Yet in this interview, I remained conscious, as Graham described, witnessing the first 14 minutes of a 43-minute prisoner execution gone horribly Wrong. That's just one of the many things we touch on here, including everything from indigenous justice as embodied in the AP Stylebook to Graham's own Cherokee history. So if you haven't already skipped ahead, let's get right to this great interview. Well, Graham Lee Brewer, thank you for joining the podcast live from your kitchen table in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm glad to have you here. And, you know, one of the ways that I found my way to talking to you is your involvement in the Native American Journalists Association. You are a board member there right now, right? Yes, that's right. And so, I mean, what does your work with that organization involve?
0: We do a lot of things, um, not just been around for. A few decades now and um we build on the great work of a lot of trailblazing native journalists who have come before us um and we we do a, a couple things mainly um, we try to be a resource for um, indigenous journalists across the country and we also try to be a resource for non-indigenous journalists across the country so um, we try to provide training opportunities funding opportunities and networking opportunities for our, our tribal members um, and then um, we also offer training and uh, consultation advice and um, often me- media criticism um, for outlets who aren't indigenous, who um, either want to do it better or have uh, given us a reason to point out how they have failed to cover Indian country in an ethical way.
1: Now, that's interesting. So you, you know, like, a, I guess, an ombudsman or an ethics watchdog for you know, fellow journalists around the country in that role. And I think you go into newsrooms and, and Teach these courses. Uh, what what is that like? Or what have you learned? Or what do you often point out when you go into other media organizations? Uh, you know, trying to you know, I guess watchdog for indigenous uh, people everywhere.
0: You know, something I say a lot to people is that the a lot of the work we do at the Native American Journal Association is making up for the gross inadequacies and failures of our public education system when it comes to indigenous people and history. Mm. You, you know, it's it's not even really just explaining to newsrooms, like, this is the verbiage that you're using that's wrong. This is how you might be framing this in the improper in context. It's, it's literally trying to decolonize, for lack of a better term, um, their mindset. Because the way in this country that we have been taught to speak and think about Indigenous people um, is is very much a part of a colonial structure. Something I always tell newsrooms when I train them is that you have to remember that col- uh, colonialism um, is not an event; it's a structure, and hmm. it's something that we're still we're still living in, and we. Um, we definitely see that with the way we're talking about slavery and reparations and mm-hmm. um, how we talk about identity and culture in this country in these mo- most recent years in a way that we never have before. I think slowly as a country, we're coming to terms with that. But there's still a lot of these like very deeply ingrained and systematic beliefs and um, uh, structures that we have. And, and, and it guides a lot of improper coverage and a lot of Um, it perpetuates a lot of stereotype and myth that was put in place on purpose to be damaging and to keep native people invisible. Do you have a for
1: instance, like have you visited a newsroom and then later on you, you know, pull up a story on your phone or computer from that, uh, you know, from that newspaper or TV station or whatever it might be, and you see a mark of progress in some small way based on, you know, what the work you've done?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think even, you know, we have been advocating the um, Associated Press to change their style book in a number of ways. Um, this last year, they actually um, agreed uh, to adopt a change where instead of saying, um, for example, Native American journalist Lee Brewer, you would say Cherokee journalist Gramley Brewer, because I'm a member of the Cherokee Nation. Um, and so it, it's a way that respects sovereignty. But but one of the things they haven't adopted yet that they said that they will continue to consider in the future is the capitalizing of the word indigenous. And it, it makes a distinction between indigenous people who are Native Americans and indigenous like plants and rocks, which would be a lowercase i. Um, and that seems like a very simple change. But... It really means a lot to Native readers and Native audiences. And when, when they recognize that you are willing to make that small change on their benefit, that's an indicator to them that you are paying attention and that you are invested, um, at least in part, in trying to represent them properly. And I think we would all agree as journalists, like that's what we want the most when we cover communities that we aren't familiar with. Is that we want them to feel like we properly represented them. We want them to see themselves in our work as they see themselves in their daily lives. Um, and so I, I do see, um, like PRI's The World, even the New York Times have has adopted that new rule, although a lot of publications adopt them and then they don't make it, um, they don't make it, a, an, they don't make a strong effort to educate their reporters. And so I still see a lot of reporters not using capitalized indigenous, um, just the other. Uh, last month, the Associated Press itself wrote a story about M. Scott Momaday, the Kiowa author, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author, um, uh, w- winning a, um, a humanitarian award. And um, they called him Native American author M. Scott Momaday and ignored their own rule. So
1: hmm. it
0: takes time and, it, you, and we we have to exercise a lot of patience on the board. Um, but, of course, that's something we're willing to do. We're willing to put in the work. Um, but um, I do see progress. And, yeah. and and it is nice and i mean even things like um you know framing a story um that is in you know the um like you know very r- remote mesas of utah or something and the reporter you know framing that as quote unquote like the middle of nowhere um just explaining to people like hey you know these this might seem like the middle of nowhere to you but to the native people that you're um writing about probably in this area of the navajo this is their homeland since time immemorial. So it's not the middle of nowhere to them. It's a very special place. And, and it's not that that reporter was trying to mischaracterize or create this us and them kind of mentality. It's that they didn't see it or didn't recognize it. And so a lot of the training is explaining that on a very fundamental level, like you need to relook or rethink how you look at Indian country.
1: Yeah, kind of lingering remnants of that notion of the civilized and the savage, in a way. Right, um, exactly. And I take your point. You know, the you're right. The general public does not appreciate uh, the AP style book and how those small changes are so meaningful. I mean, in one sense, you're capitalizing a single letter, but it, while the change is small, it's pervasive. And you know, we know as journalists and the listeners to this podcast know, they're journalism junkies that. People go crazy over the tiniest change. The AP style book. so the fact that you can make that happen is really significant. I mean, uh, so you know, point taken on capitalizing indigenous as a as a milestone. I mean, look how crazy people went this last year with um, you know the AP style book now allowing the percent sign instead of spelling out percentage. Right. So
0: I, that's that's one I'm still having trouble getting <laughs> used to myself. Uh, yeah, I come. I remember I was a reporter at the Oklahoma newspaper for several years and. Um, I, it's so ingrained in me to spell out the word percent. So,
1: yeah, they, these things are part of our daily lives. So, I, you, know, the, here you are in in newsrooms doing this kind of work. But I imagine you wouldn't have envisioned that at the start of your career. So, why in the hell did you want to be a journalist in the first place?
0: You know, I actually. So, um, I grew up. My dad is a huge NPR fan, and so I grew up listening to NPR in the back seat of his car, and I hated it. <laughs> I, um, I am like really, I was, you know, just really into music and I always have been. And, and so I always wanted to listen to music in the car and I just never understood why we had to listen to this boring, uh, news radio show. Um, but it, you know, as I got older and I became a teenager and I started paying attention to the world and politics, um, I started kind of finding interest in those stories and I would start listening and then engaging with them. And then I became an NPR fan myself. And by the time I got to college, I was like one of so few people I remember in my class that really listened to public radio. Um, but I was a huge fan of, of that work and I was attending the University of Oklahoma and I really wanted to be a novelist. And, Mm -hmm. um, of course that would still be great someday, who knows, maybe, but, uh, um, yeah, so I, I was attending the professional writing school at the university of Oklahoma and it's kind of a long story and I I think it has its origins in maybe a dispute between the English department and the journalism department or something like, or the professional writing department back in the twenties. But the professional writing department was moved a long time ago from the English department and housed in the college of journalism and it just stayed there. So if you want to learn how to write a novel, at the University of Oklahoma, you enroll in the College of Journalism. Hmm. It's kind of an interesting place for it to be. But you learn a lot of other types of writing, too, technical writing and genre uh, writing and things like that. But, um, so anyway, I, I was a professional writing major, and uh, KGOU, the NPR member station on the, uh, across the Oval on campus, was hiring a student reporter-producer position, and um, it was to host a, a student public affairs program and i applied for the job i had a a little bit of writing and editing experience and they uh, took a chance on me and gave me the job and i i did my very first like real news stories at kgou under their guidance and they taught me a lot about um, ethics and practice and of course how you know how to do audio production work but as a professional writing student i wasn't necessarily enrolled in a lot of journalism classes. I was really more focused on uh, writing, and so a lot of the fundamental, you know, ethics and um, training that you get as a journalist, I got at, at, at that at radio station um, on the campus of the University of Oklahoma, and um, I just really fell in love with it. I never, I'll never forget. I did my first story about a local musician, a guy named Ryan Lindsay um, He's now in a band called Broncho, which is doing really well. And um, Ryan, I was just really impressed with a lot of his uh, previous work, and I had gotten to know him a little bit just from living in the same town. And I did a story about him, and I remember when I finished editing it and I played it for Karen, the station manager, um, the mixture of the look on her face and the way it made me feel after it was done, I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And um, yeah, yeah, and then I just kind of just took off from there, and I ended up at the Oklahoman after... A few year or about a year, actually, sorry, covering the state legislature for a small newswire called E-Capital and um, um, made it to the Oklahoman. And uh, that's really I really learned a lot there, too. That was the, the the first newspaper I ever worked at was the state's largest. And so it was a really big learning curve for me. I'll never forget my after I turned in my first story, my first editor um, he said, man, you use a lot of quotes in your story. (laughs) And yeah, i had come from radio. I was taught to like, let other people explain it for you whenever you could. And I was like, Oh, and he goes, no, you write with authority here. And he really kind of showed me that it, it was my job to, um, really, really know this issue and write like I knew it. And so, um, it was a really good experience. And, and, um, from there, I have been at high country news now for, I guess, a couple of couple years this this month actually yeah well no, i love
1: I love both the um yeah the way I guess you blended both radio and traditional print for lack of a better word uh you know in, early in your career for that kind of grounding in how you uh tell stories as a journalist, and I also mm-hmm. love that influence of academic bureaucracy on having you know <laughs> having the uh the, the storytellers in with the journalism department um that's that's wonderful so mm-hmm. uh well, you're contributing editor for Tribal Affairs for High Country News. What does that mean just on a day-to-day basis for you?
0: You know, it, so we're the only non-Native-owned public, national publication that has a desk fully devoted to the coverage of Indian Country. Um, you know, we, we have uh, colleagues in, at Indian Country Today, which is Native-owned, and they're doing great work, too. Um, but High Country News was the only non-Native magazine that was saying it wanted to do Tribal Affairs coverage better and then actually put money towards it. Um, and so uh, there's five of us on the desk now, four of us are tribal members and, um, we just cover really anything across. We, we mainly stick to the West, but if it, if it affects tribes and it's an important story, um, we'll cover it no matter where it's at, um, even in Canada or Mexico, if that's necessary, um, which we've done before. And, um, it's a, it's, it's, man, I really, really, really love working there. It is such a great opportunity, you know, being Cherokee, journalism is such a huge, huge part of our history. We were the first tribe with a written language, the first tribe with a newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix, which is still in print today. And, hmm. um, and it's still to this day, prints its articles in both English and Cherokee. And, um, you know, my mom subscribed to that paper. I remember seeing it all the time when I was little. And um, journalism is, is is a very integral part of our identity, and at least for me, uh, as a Cherokee citizen. And so, yeah. um, getting to tell the stories of Indian country is such a privilege. And as as I mentioned, you know that Indian country has a very big invisibility problem in, in mainstream society, there's a lot of stereotype and myth and misconception, um, and just ig- ignorance about w- what Indian country is and who comprises it mm-hmm. and, um, a- and how we got here as a nation. And so one of the things we really pride ourselves on the tribal affairs desk, uh, is, is that we, um, we don't just do breaking news stories, um, all the time or surface level issues. We want to know, um, That deeper, more nuanced level. Um, One of the my favorite examples is when we we get a lot of we used to get a lot of pitches, of of people who wanted to write about tribes who had uh, language revitalization programs, where they were trying to keep their languages alive. Mm -hmm. And um, Tristan Atone, uh, my editor, who's Kiowa, he would always ask, you know, I I understand why these. These programs exist. I don't really need an explainer on why it's important to keep this language alive. I want to know is it a treaty right? Should the government be funding these because they were the ones who decimated it and tried to destroy it? Don't they owe it to these tribes as part of their treaty obligations to help them keep it alive? It's part of their culture. And that's that extra level of nuance and complexity that we really seek to bring to our readers. I really try to keep in mind when I'm writing my stories, uh, my indigenous audience, I want to write things on a level that they learn something and not just as explainer pieces for people who don't necessarily understand Indian country, although that is a component of what I do. Yeah. Um, But I I really want to write on a deeper level than other people at mainstream outlets often do. Most of the time when you see... Indian country covered in a national outlet it's because a national reporter has parachuted into um, Indian country because of a tragedy and right we don't want to do that my most recent feature about Bacone College restarting its art program it's going to be tough for them and they're facing a lot of deficit and crumbling infrastructure but you know that story is something that other people didn't really seem to want to tell and it it was very very important to me that college completely reshaped the native artistic canon um, throughout the 1900s. And so um, those are the kind of stories that we really search out and, and try to tell, and um, we I, I would argue you don't see in other places.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, it sounds like you're making it sharp, make it urgent, and you know, fully in the present. You know, it's not a museum piece that you're producing. Um, you're uh, letting it live and breathe now with those, you know, more urgent questions. I like
0: that. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's important to remember that indigenous people, we're not we're not a people who, we're not a monolith, but we're also not collectively a people whose greatest history is behind us. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very, very important to me that through our coverage, indigenous people are seen as the modern people that we are. Well, you know,
1: you mentioned your Cherokee heritage, and let's dive into that just for a second. I saw this video on YouTube, I think it was from at least several years ago, where it looked like it was the start of... Uh, you retracing your Cherokee roots in a much more profound way, you know, back through the Civil War, the Trail of Tears. W- what has your own genealogy done for you? How far have you taken that? What have you learned from it?
0: Yeah, that was, um, so the Cherokee Nation has a, a show called Oco, which is how, is, is how you greet people in the Cherokee language. And um is a really great show. It's It's really highly produced and a lot of thought and care goes into it and um i was really honored when they asked if i i would participate in a in a show they actually found out um through some mutual friends of ours that uh, i i was working on a piece at, it was when i was working at the oklahoman and i wanted to write a piece about my genealogy search through the cherokee nations um uh, genealogy department and their records and just kind of show readers that i think a lot of tribal members um had their history stripped from them through colonialism you know a, a lot of people had a great grandparent or even a parent who was in an indian boarding school and um was their their their, their language and their culture and their history was stripped from them and so i i i really wanted to write that piece because i wanted to show people that colonialism took that history from you and it's, you have every right to take it back and it, and it is something that you can do. It's something that's feasible. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I'm lucky cause the Cherokee nation we're a very large and um, economically robust tribe. And so they have the money and resources and time to do that kind of search on my behalf. Um, but one of the, um, um, one of the things that the government did when it was, um, committing genocide against indigenous people, uh, particularly through like land allotments and the trail of tears was that they meticulously uh, kept records of us. And so those records make it easy to easier, I guess, to find out who you are and where you come from. And so that's what the Cherokee nation did for me is they used a lot of Dawes rolls, records, um, correspondence with the government for allotted land. Um, there was even some interviews done by, um, um, people with my um great 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 grandfather Hmm. and so um yeah it was really neat i mean i got to i got to get a sense of who they were and where they come from unfortunately i don't i I didn't have a lot of records and and the record did have an ending point my great 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 grandfather simply wrote his name down in Sweetwater on the um um when he was when they were being removed um And, uh, and so did two or three other people, I believe. And so they couldn't exactly pinpoint what area of the country, um, my uh, ancestors came from, but I did get a a sense of, of, of their travel here over the trail. Um, my great, great grandfather was born on the trail of tears, um, which I can only Mm -hmm. imagine was just, um, it, it, it's a really, really humbling thing to learn. Wow. Um, so you know you
1: have the so you have this name Sweetwater, but you're still I guess you still kind of wonder about the about the ultimate source. Although you've filled in a lot of the history since wherever yeah. wherever the you know wherever they came from.
0: I one of the things that was really fun was um, uh, Jen Lauren, who who is the host of Oco. She um, actually found um uh, my great great grandfather william sweetwater's grave it's in this unincorporated area of northeastern oklahoma called zena and she took me there and it was really really powerful um but once i had an once i knew the date or the the year he died um and the area i contacted the local newspaper which um told me that all of their archives are in the at the oklahoma historical society and they were actually able to find his obituary and so um it was just kind of interesting. And then that's how I found out that the prairie where he died is actually still named after our family. So it's not like, um, you know, on a roadside or anything like that. But if you Google Sweetwater Prairie, it actually still shows up in Northeastern Oklahoma. Hmm. And so it's just kind of neat to, I guess, have a little bit stronger of a connection to the land and the history here. And Oklahoma is such a fascinating place historically. Um, and, um, yeah, it was it was a really really great experience, and I I mean of course I wish I could keep going and knew more, and, and I'm going to keep trying. But um, um, yeah, getting these little crumbs every once in a while has been pretty exciting.
1: That's neat. You know, so as a As a journalist in Oklahoma, I know that you've spent a lot of time covering the prison um, system and death penalty issues. I I also saw a reference that you once witnessed a botched execution, which I have to imagine is seared in your brain. Um, Just can you tell me about that particular day?
0: Yeah, yeah, that was um, April of 2014, I believe. That was Clayton Lockett. So Lockett, his execution became infamous internationally, Um, because it it lasted 43 minutes, I believe, but we only, as members of the press, we only got to witness the first 13, 14 minutes, because they, um, once uh, Lockett began convulsing on the gurney, they lowered the blinds, and the rest of the execution was shielded from the press. We were actually escorted out of the room um, moments after they lowered Mm -hmm. the blinds, left wondering if he was alive or dead. Um, But yeah, I mean, you're... Point is well taken. It, that night is um, is definitely something I think about a lot. Um, you know, Lockett. When I first got to the Oklahoman, I was covering the state legislature, and they had a round of layoffs. And one of the things that they tended to do at that paper when there was layoffs is sometimes they would shift people around. And they took me out of the Capitol and put me on the general assignments desk. I was the, the newest hire at the Capitol. And or I mean, at the paper. And so I was a little, it was a little, felt like a little bit of a demotion to me, right? You know, you covered the governor's office and the state legislature, and then you get put on the GA desk. And so my friend, Sean Murphy, a reporter at the Associated Press, he mentioned that, you know, you're always talking about the prison system and how inadequate and underfunded and overcrowded it is. No one at the paper's covering it. What's to stop you now? And I was like, you know, that's a great idea. And so I really just threw myself into the Department of Corrections coverage. And right about that time, just two or three months after I was really starting to write a lot about it, I wanted to cover death row somehow. I wasn't sure what that was going to be just yet, but I had pitched the idea to my editor. You know, I'd, li- I'd like to do some kind of profile of death row. Who, who's on it? Um, where are their cases now? Um, it's something that we haven't informed our readers about in a long time. And um, when I was digging around, that's kind of when I f- found out that the state was getting really low on its um, supply of pentobarbital, which at the time was the preferred drug. And I guess still is preferred drug for lethal injections. But the manufacturers of pentobarbital don't want its dr- their drug used for executions. And so they've banned its set sale to states for that purpose. And so um, there are compounding pharmacies that have, have been able to make it. But long story short, Oklahoma was running out, and they were going to start relying on this new kind of controversial drug called medazolam. And medazolam had been used a couple times already in some very um, lengthy and problematic, and and quite frankly gruesome executions. And. So when I found this out, I, I thought, well, this is interesting. And I really started kind of diving into that idea of what what is this drug and, and what are people saying about it and what are the potential problems with it? And that's when I basically just started going to executions and witnessing them. And um, at the time, the state uh, or the DOC's uh, protocol had, a, had a, a policy that stated that if the paper of record... Had a guaranteed seat to every execution, so I just knew that if I showed up and the murder happened in in my coverage area, I could I could get in. Mm-hmm. And um, so when when Lockett happened, I had no trouble getting in into that execution. It was a packed house. Um, but anyway, I um, we all. It's kind of funny. Lockett was just this perfect storm. So the first execution I ever witnessed was a guy named Ronald Clinton Lott. And he was convicted of of murdering and raping two elderly women in Oklahoma City in the 80s. And it was me and the Associated Press, his attorney and his brother. And the rest of the room was empty. Hmm. There was no one else there. And it was over in six minutes. And I wrote my story at the prison and I got in my car and I drove the two hours home. And it was just kind of a weird feeling. But then when everyone was started, started talking about midazolam and Lockett's execution was supposed to be part of a double execution. They were also going to execute a man named Charles Warner that same night. And so it got a lot of media attention. And I just remember the difference between Ronald Lott and Clayton Lockett's executions was just if I, if the Associated Press reporter if her car had broken down on the side of the road and I had never expressed an interest in Ronald Lot, the Ronald Clinton Lot, then no one would have, no media w- witnesses would have been in attendance for his execution. But then we get to Lockett, and it was this big story, and everyone's there, you know, from the New York Times to the local television station in Tulsa, hmm. and so um, it was crazy. I mean, it was a circus, but Lockett. I I, you know I Sean Murphy who I mentioned earlier and Ziva Brandstetter who's now at the Washington Post she was at the Tulsa World they were kind of the two veteran reporters there in the local market that you know mentored me and that and that I looked up to and so I really made a point to sit in between Ziva and Sean (laughs) during the execution um but you know the executions are this really surreal strange endeavor I mean you know you it's we've all shown up to put someone to death to kill someone using our tax dollars, and we're all just letting it happen. It's just kind of a strange moment in time and and it's very controlled and very systematic. And, you know, you can't I can't you can't even bring a watch in you. They they give you a pen and pad to use and then you tear the paper you wrote on out and you give everything back to them. And so it, it's like a very, very controlled environment. But as Lockett showed us, they had been doing it the same way for so long that they didn't really revise the system. And so the doctor didn't actually have the correct materials to even perform the execution. Lockett was very intentional. He dehydrated himself. He cut himself. He he wanted his execution. I I think he wanted his execution to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And so they had a really hard time finding a vein. They couldn't find one in his hands or his feet. Um, or his arms and so what they did is they call it a cut down method they cut into his femoral artery in the groin and they Mm. they put a needle into his femoral artery the doctor didn't have a needle long enough and he used the wrong size and it popped out but not all the way and so the drugs began to pool and lock its muscle tissue and it's likely he wasn't fully conscious when the drugs began entering his body and so when he was writhing and speaking on the gurney it's very likely that that was his body's expression of the pain, the extraordinary pain he was going through. Um, there's been a lot of coverage of what happened after those blinds closed um, because there was a state investigation. And, um, man, covering that whole deal, I mean, even down to the autopsy, I remember they, I broke a story how the, they sent Lockett's body back from the Texas. They sent his body to Texas to do an independent autopsy outside of the state of Oklahoma. And they sent it back without the heart or the throat, I believe. <laughs> and I just remember talking to his attorney, and he mentioned that. And I was like, this story just never stops being insane. Um, yeah, and, and and Charles Warner, that other man I mentioned, with the state ended up executing him with the wrong drug, and then the wrong drug showed up for the next one, Richard Glossop, and that's why Glossop's still alive, and we're under the current moratorium on executions that we're at now. Um, the state hasn't executed someone in, I believe, about three years, which is by far the longest gap in execution since the mid-90s. Wow. Well, you
1: mentioned, you know, with uh, with sagas like that, you mentioned the mentoring that goes on between you and other journalists, even from other newsrooms, and how you, mm-hmm. you know, you got there, you, you were covering that because you had been, because of reorganizations and layoffs, and you were no longer in the state legislature. And the lack of journalists in state legislatures around the country is a perennial topic. How, I mean, what, what do you think about this local news crisis that we're going through? It's a regular topic on this podcast. And, I mean, are you at an oasis? Are you on your own oasis in some way at High Country News because of the specialized nature of your coverage and, and the audience? Or do you not feel safe from what's happening with local news?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it's something I think about a lot. I I am very lucky at High Country News that they recognized uh, I have an expertise in covering Indian country, and they gave me a job to do so. I mean, Brian Calvert, the editor in chief, called me, I think it was like a couple weeks after I got laid off. Um, I I just felt so, so incredibly lucky uh, to receive his phone call. Um, But I think the Oklahoman is, you know, when I look at it now, I still have friends there, and I'm really rooting for that paper. But there, there's this kind of glut, you know, like of middle career reporters. You know, it's either really young reporters or really old reporters. And, and as we saw in the, their most recent round of layoffs just a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, um, some of those senior reporters are now gone too. And so there really is something to be said about, having a staff that is multi-generational because uh, there are some investigative reporters at the Oklahoman that had been there since I was in diapers, and I was lucky enough to sit next to them and learn from them and just overhear their phone conversations and how they talk to sources. Mm -hmm. Um, Whenever I was headed into Ronald Lott's execution, reporters came up to my desk and just said, hey, I heard you're taking over this beat again. I want to tell you about my first execution and it was from reporters as young as uh my good friend jacqueline cosgrove who's now doing a great work at the la times to older reporters like nolan clay who i think had been at the oklahoma or he's still there since 85 or 86 and he witnessed timothy mcveigh's execution wow um so i got a lot of really great advice from people um reminders to take care of myself and my mental health to take the paper up on the free counseling that they offered, which I did every year um, that I covered the prison system and the death penalty because it takes, your, it takes a toll on you mentally seeing that much tragedy and sadness. And, and I eventually did a lot of work on the crime desk and that it, you're reliving trauma in like real time with people who are victims of violence and it, it weighs heavy on you and it keeps you up at night sometimes. But, um, but it also reminds you of the importance of telling those stories and reminding people of those, you know, often unseen and hidden pockets of uh, of our criminal justice system. Yeah. Well, this, um,
1: this has been uh, quite a far-flung conversation. I really appreciate you taking <laughs> the time, um, Graham. Uh, so going forward, when I think about, you know, with your specialty and what you're covering now— uh, in, indigenous rights in the upper Midwest, sometimes that involves recurring issues like casino gaming or, you know, oil pipelines and, and water and land rights around, um, around, around those pipelines. What would you say, what's going to be dominating your coverage in the next year or so? I don't know if that would intersect in, in, at all with the 2020 campaign, or what will be some of the themes that, um, that you hit most often going forward?
0: you know, I think there's just so many different places in Indian country that deserve more attention. Um, certainly with my criminal justice background, there are, um, some areas of the, uh, where Indian country and, and and criminal justice overlap that I'm very interested in. And we've begun some work on, um, definitely. I think the ramifications of these first few years of the Trump administration are something that plays heavy into all of our stories, you know, um, Bears Ears and the reduction of that national monument by over 80% what, it was a huge blow. And it, and it has like a big ripple effect in that area. Um, voter disenfranchisement and um, the I think, you know, the proposals for reduction in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people that are put in charge of the Department of Interior and how those... Programs are, are running or, or or not. I think those are things that we're we're still you know obviously just kind of getting a grasp of and that we really want to pay attention to in the future. Um, but you know to your point about pipelines, you know I th- I think we're you know we're gonna see uh, you know monarchia things like that. We're gonna see more of those. Um, I think altercations and conflicts take place because a- as the as the push to develop protected lands continues or increases those indigenous people who call those places special um, or home are going to continue to fight them. And I think Standing Rock definitely showed us that not only can that, that be a, um, a product of American journalism, I think the way Standing Rock was covered was very irresponsible in a lot of ways. And, and it could have been covered as the court case and, um, um, uh, that that it was that that it was you know year a year or two before it, it made national headlines and so I often look to Standing Rock to think like you know the next time something like that happens you know he, he, these are all the examples that I learned from that the things I'm not going to do the more and the more nuance I'm going to provide so. um I, I think we have a lot of great opportunities ahead of us. I continue, so I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, what I hear you saying is that it, uh, there was, there was too much focus on the spectacle or again, it became almost a stereotype or, or a caricature of it. Uh, yeah. I coverage. think, I think
0: David Troyer who wrote heartbeat of wounded knee that came out earlier this year, a really great um, book. He, um, he's, he was on the, um, a guest on, on the media not too long ago. and, and and he said, you know, this isn't a cowboys versus Indians story. This is, you know, public land versus private land and how the government treats the two differently. Yeah. And how the people there feel about those places. And I thought that was a really great way to say it because it wasn't an important story to American journalists until rubber bullets were being shot and hoses were being, you know, sprayed on people in freezing temperatures. But that story was sitting there waiting to be told in court documents and, and government memos long before it became a national story. Yeah.
1: Good point. Well, well, thanks for being out there on the front lines of Journalism, Graham, uh, covering all this and uh, you know, for your track record and, and for taking us into a little bit of your um, Cherokee heritage and everything else. I appreciate the conversation.
0: I really do, too. I, love, I, I teach a class at OU, and it, one of my favorite things is to just talk about journalism, even when the students don't want to listen. So um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our craft.
1: All right. Well, take care. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Journalists Are My Heroes. And thank you again to my guest, Graham Lee Brewer, and to the Native American Journalists Association. You can find us on the Anchor platform. That's where this podcast is housed, and that's where you can help support it if you so choose. But you can listen to us anywhere. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and the list goes on. Please... uh, Find us on social media, at Journalism Hero, at Journalism Hero on Twitter, on Instagram. And I've got one more great episode coming up in this season before we get ready for season two of Journalists Are My Heroes. Thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. ¶¶